Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And having been hosting solo last week, I am delighted to have my pod buddy back again this week. Hi Sharon, I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. I really missed being part of last week's conversation and I've listened to the chat that you had with Valerie Coombs, an extraordinarily wise woman, and I, I was really struck by how she threaded together the themes that emerged from our previous conversations around housing in a very, very, very real way. I'm so sorry I missed it. I'm so glad I got to listen to it. We certainly miss having you with us, Anna. Greta, but it was a remarkable conversation. It was a real privilege to to talk with Valerie. And I've been quoting her ever since I spoke to her and particularly the points that she made around thinking differently about housing for First Nations people and thinking about mobility, thinking about housing beyond nuclear families and one, two or three bedroom apartments and how we can do things so very, very differently. And I think if we were to listen to the, the the wisdom of people like Val, we would start to think about housing in a in a completely different way, with better outcomes for everyone. You know, housing doesn't have to be one thing for everyone. We can genuinely think about what people need to meet their needs and their interests and connect them to one another, to their communities and to country. Um, and Val really had some great advice for us on that. Yeah, Sharon, I think we'll come back to housing. I feel like the conversations we've had over about housing in the last few weeks really have opened my eyes to its central importance and, and I've been thinking about housing in the healthcare context for quite a long time. Um, I really hope that we continue to touch on the theme of housing over the course of next year and beyond uh, because I think it's probably a central challenge in the Australian context and one one where if we can get it right, the beneficial effect for so many people um, will be quite extraordinary. Extraordinary. I would love to come back to housing again, Anna Greta. You know, the, the work that we're doing with children at the moment about their experiences of poverty, we are hearing again and again about the importance of housing and what happens when housing isn't available or when it's insecure um, or when it doesn't feel safe. 
and I've said this before and I'll keep on saying it, one of the things that does concern me is as we go into this drive of, of trying to build more social housing, which we need to do, we need to think about how we're building that housing because if we don't get it right, we are stuck with it for generations to come. So it is really important to think about what good housing looks like and what's what housing that connects people looks like. And we're not quite there at the moment. Mm, absolutely. Listeners, this is what Policy Forum Pod is about. Uh, it's about the complex policy challenges of our time. Policy Forum Pod comes from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And if you check out our website, crawford.anu.edu.au slash study, you'll find a wide range of degree programs and short courses that touch on and draw out the issues that you'll hear discussed across our podcast in the last few years. This week, of course, we are going to talk about another topic which has come up once or twice and, in fact, is, I think, a theme that sits through so many of the conversations we've had in the last few years. We're going to talk today about climate change. It didn't have the build-up of last year's conference in Glasgow, but this year's United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as the Conference of Parties or COP27, in Egypt was no less important. It finished with an historic agreement to establish a loss and damage fund, but without significant progress on emissions reduction, leaving governments with so much to do if global temperature rises are to be kept below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Joining us today, we are delighted to have our two favourite COP commentators who were both in the negotiating rooms at Sharm el-Sheikh. It's so wonderful to have you with us today to talk through the issues. And perhaps I could ask you both to start by introducing yourselves. Siobhan McDonald, could you go first? Sure. Um, I'm Siobhan McDonald. I'm a senior lecturer in the Crawford School, but uh, since 2019 I've had the privilege of being a loss and damage negotiator uh, for various governments in the Pacific. Um, So that is what took me to this COP as well. Fantastic. And Siobhan, with you, of course, is George Carter. George, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners who I'm sure will remember you, but if you could remind us who what your background is as well. My name is George Carter. I'm a research fellow with the Department of Pacific Affairs and also the director of the Pacific Institute. Uh, this year, um, I attended COP again under the government of uh, New Way but also part of the regional organisations from the Pacific, what's known as the One Crop, the Council for Regional Organisations in the Pacific, supporting the 14 different island countries. And this year I was supporting under the theme of gender and climate change. Uh, It's good to be back in the programme. It is just so good to have the two of of you with us uh, on the pod this week. So much of the coverage of COP has painted a picture of very tense negotiations. The talks were described in The Guardian as being fraught and often bitter over the two weeks. And the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was described as looking visibly, visibly shocked by the atmosphere when he arrived toward the end of the conference. It also sounded exhausting, with the final negotiations continuing not just until the early hours, but overnight and into breakfast the next day. I'd love to hear from the two of you to start today's conversation. You were both in the negotiating rooms in Egypt. How did this year's talks compare to previous conferences? The talks were particularly tense um, and there were, I mean, I think it's fair to say there were kind of significant geopolitical challenges that were going on in the negotiations this year that played out in all kinds of complicated ways. So, 
the energy crisis in the Ukraine fed into the conference of the parties in all kinds of different ways. Saudi Arabia in particular put forward a whole range of quite pointed political perspectives. China took more of a role than is usual. The Africa COP lent itself to particular kinds of geopolitical dynamics and the presidency played a very different role to the usual role of um, really facilitating negotiation outcomes and dialogue. So uh, the Egypt presidency didn't really uh, step into the negotiations in any particular way until the very end of the Conference of the Parties m- meeting. And that meant that um, it was a very party-based negotiation, uh, but it it had a whole range of very complex dynamics to it. George, what were your thoughts? Indeed, it was uh, complex, but also very frustrating. I think many went into the negotiations uh, of course, coming out of Bonn uh, in June, there was quite a lot of um, the agenda, many agenda open uh, for discussions at the uh, the subsidiary body meeting that would continue in the first week of the COP, which would then lead on to the um, ministerial in the second week when COP uh, negotiations would happen. So there was a bit of frustration in terms of one, such a big agenda with many items still open. Uh, across the board, from finance, loss and damage, adaptation, mitigation. But at the same time, as um, Siobhan alluded to, was uh, the uh, Egyptian presidency was not forthcoming. Their approach to building consensus and trying to reach consensus with the parties meant only working with a few parties, but also very much at the two and a half weeks uh, in Sham al-Sheikh. If you look into the work of uh, the French presidency or the um, uh, UK presidency in uh, previous COPs, they would work with parties at the beginning of the year, all the way throughout. And so for many of us, we arrived into Sham al-Sheikh unknown on what the procedure would be, uh, the processes in which they'll approach not only the parties, but also with the different coalitions. And then, of course, a lot of frustration with the facilities. Uh, the expensive um, hotel, as well as transportation, uncertainty with how you get to these venues. Um, Many of this were raised even before uh, the meeting started. So that was part and parcel of um, uh, not only having a big agenda, uh, not a transparent or open process that would allow countries or parties to plan for the next two and a half weeks, but also an agenda item that was just so vast. Um, of course, being a COP that was about implementation, um, many things were, you know, to be discussed. And that also transpired to what happened towards the end with so many decisions that were still very open or uh, fluid that you don't know what it is, uh, with not much uh, certainty in what they look like, rather than it just continues to work for the next year, rather than sort of a bigger ambition or plan for what can be done in the next three, four, or even five years. I think you've both outlined both the frustrations, but perhaps also the the lack of um, finality or vision around this particular COP. As Anna Greta flagged in the introduction, what has been presented as one of the major achievements of COP27 is the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund, which would see wealthier nations paying for the impacts of climate change in the global south. 
Siobhan, this is an issue that you have been working on for, for many years and you talked to us about your frustrations coming out of COP26 in Glasgow about this time last year. Can you talk us through what it was that was agreed to this time around? Yeah, certainly. Um, and for for your listeners who've been listening to me over a period of time, you'll know that I've been working on this loss and damage finance facility now um, for a very extended period of time. So uh, if we just quickly revert back to last year in Glasgow, uh, the Pacific actually led with the introduction of this idea of a loss and damage finance facility. So it was drafted by me as Fiji and led by Tuvalu, And on that basis, it then became an alliance of small island states position and then a position of the G77 and China, so the 134 countries that make up that that combined global south um, perspective, really. And we had a a very complex negotiation in Glasgow with a number of countries ultimately not coming on board, most notably the United States, but also the EU. So... From that point onwards, we ended up with something that was called the Glasgow Dialogue that came out of the decision text in the Glasgow Glasgow Climate Pact of last year. The Glasgow Dialogue was essentially a dialogue around loss and damage finance, but it had no reporting requirements and it had no decision-making outcome attached to it. So when I went to Bonn last year, I worked with the Alliance of Small Island States chair and we drafted an agenda item to really try and progress the loss and damage finance facility in a way that meant there was a basis for a decision to come out of this COP. There's been a huge amount of work done by the AOSIS chair to really progress this conversation in New York but around the regions and around the Pacific and the Caribbean in particular. And all of that built into a momentum coming into this COP where um, once we secured the agenda item at the beginning of this, uh, the Egypt COP, the next issue was, well, what would sit under the agenda item in terms of content? So over that um, really two-and-a-half-week-plus process, um, we were involved in a very detailed negotiation over the loss and damage finance facility. And that negotiation went through uh, the G77 and China who created a very strong position going forward into the negotiations and ultimately those conversations were brokered through a whole range of different partnerships. And what we came out with was an agreement really to set up a committee, a transitional committee, that over the next year will work out a lot of the details of what the loss and damage finance facility will look like. So the Um, The key decision text talks about the importance of loss and damage finance, particularly for climate vulnerable countries, climate vulnerable developing countries of which Pacific Island states are, are key and a transitional committee that will be established over the next year really to progress that work. And so there's a lot of text about what that work will involve. There's a lot of governance arrangements to think through. There's a lot of key content issues from the perspective of the Pacific a lot of the finance that is needed uh, doesn't currently exist. So there are key climate, there are key gaps around the kind of finance products that are needed. For example, there's no finance products uh, globally at the moment to deal with issues of sea level rise. There are no finance products to deal with non-economic loss and damage. So um, this kind of crucial work will need to be undertaken 
to some degree over the next year and then moving forward. So the next moment, um, really, there's a whole range of work that will take place over the year through the Transitional Committee. And then the next pivotal moment is the launching of the finance facility at the next COP in the UAE. So it's a tremendously significant move, but there's still a lot of work to do over the next year or so. And I'd love to hear, George, your thoughts on on what this loss and damage commitment means for the Pacific. Loss and damage has been part of what Pacific Islands or, and even the Alliance of Small Island States have been asking for since 1990, when the first, uh, when the treaty was established, as well as in COP1, when it was in Germany. It was an issue that was raised um, by the Alliance's Small Island States through um, Vanuatu. And of course, the issue wasn't uh, brought up. Uh, it was sort of on the sidelines. It wasn't until uh, we get to the story in Paris, where you have famously Tuvalu uh, trying as much as possible to elevate this issue, to become embedded in within the Paris Agreement. And that is when now we have the um, tremendous work that we have now on loss and damage because it's implanted within the Paris Agreement. And so the legacy of where we now have loss and damage, not only agenda item, but now the beginning of a fund, uh, this shows the agency, but the diplomacy that was used by Pacific Island states through the small island development states, such as AOSIS, to where it is now. But as we've heard, there's still a long way to go. You know, just having an announcement and to set up a transitional committee, um, larger parties are able to also stall and lag, um, create tactics that will mean that this item uh, may take a few more years. We see this in the history of how the Green Climate Fund was established. Although an announcement like what we have made uh, this year for loss and damage uh, if we look at the example of GCF was announced in 2010, it actually took eight years before the funding actually became established and parties like small agencies were able to get access to it. So the pressure is on for not only small island states, but also least developed countries and G77 to keep pushing all parties to ensure that the fund is uh, not only usable, but also accessible for countries through a simplified modality as soon as possible. So we do not repeat what happened with the Green Climate Fund, that it takes eight years just to operationalize. Of course, the other question about where does the funding come from? Of course, we have larger nations or developed nations uh, or drag their feet in terms of putting forth commitment of additional funds, uh, not just the climate fund that has been uh, identified, but additional funding to support and loss and damage. So that's also where the other pressure should be from, but also climate action from the other side in terms of providing uh, these funds. So uh, while it's a good news to have the announcement, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to hopefully uh, we see this uh, fund being accessible for not only countries, but communities in the Pacific. Siobhan, as, as George has, has just mapped out so clearly there, this is the beginning of the process and hopefully it's not going to take us almost a decade to to, to operationalise the fund. But Siobhan, you, you talked about the launch of the finance facility happening at COP next year. 
Can you talk us through what you think is likely to be the politics of the process over the coming year and and perhaps beyond? How much enthusiasm is there amongst wealthier countries to contribute to this fund? And do you think we're going to see the kind of process that we see play out in relation to some other issues where wealthier countries take the funding for a particular issue, in in this case the loss and damage fund, away from their development assistance programs. So rather than seeing additional funding provided, we see a shuffling of fund, a shuffling of funds from from one place to another um, in a way that perhaps doesn't live up to the intent of an agreement. So I want to talk I want to start by describing why I think this loss and damage finance facility is so important and why I think the decision is historic. Um, So the first aspect of that is that for the first time we can see a link um, made between mitigation and loss and damage in the United Nations governance architecture. So what the establishment of this finance facility really says is, you know, we call on you to mitigate. The Pacific is very strong in saying 1.5 to stay alive. But if you don't mitigate, then you need to accept that there is a responsibility. And the loss and damage finance facility is the first time we've ever established that link. And what that says is loss and damage finance uh, is critical. Already we have climate vulnerable countries that are paying themselves to rebuild, so are paying the cost post-cyclone, for example, for rebuilding infrastructure, for rebuilding lives. And what this loss and damage finance facility does is it says globally there is a responsibility and moving forward uh, those carbon-emitting countries in particular, those large developed countries, need to accept some of the responsibility for the losses and damages that are being incurred now. So that is what's so important about the decision. For a long time, we have not had uh, what is seen as the third pillar. So we've had mitigation and adaptation, but we haven't actually had any kind of meat on the bones of loss and damage within the UN climate governance framework. And, And that's why this decision matters. However, we have to be realistic and pragmatic about the politics moving forward. So uh, in theory, we have a commitment each year of $100 billion worth of adaptation finance that should flow already through the UN climate governance system. And yet we know that those commitments to that $100 billion of adaptation finance are not being met currently. So the call for this finance facility is new and additional finance uh, on top of what is spent on adaptation and efforts made in the mitigation space. The crucial part of all of this in terms of moving forward is that the UN climate governance system is consensus-based. So it was very important to get the buy-in of key uh, developed country blocks, so, for example, the European Union but also the Umbrella Group, in moving forward with this loss and damage finance facility because ultimately it is it is groups like that 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 climate vulnerable countries will be calling on to place funding in the facility uh, when it's operationalised at the next COP. We can't afford to wait the eight or nine years that it uh, that it took to set up the Green Climate Fund. 
Uh, so the time frame for this is already built into this decision text and the idea is that it will be operationalised at the next COP. But there is a huge amount of work to begin in order for that to happen. On the positive side, uh, there's a huge amount of political momentum behind loss and damage financing. I think there is a real understanding within uh, the within Europe, within North America, uh, amongst people themselves about the importance of this kind of facility and what it means. And I think that creates political pressure in those countries. So there is a real understanding of this being the space of climate justice and of the need to finance into loss and damage in order to address some of the concerns that are happening right now in climate vulnerable countries in particular. One of the major points of contention coming out of this summit is whether China will be required to contribute to the fund. George, would you be able to talk us through what some of the conversations have been about the position of China um, and what the what the concerns might be? Absolutely. It's not just for the loss and damage. It's also for um, climate financing, even in initiatives around the area that um, I was working on around gender and the gender action plan. The dynamics or the geopolitics of climate change or the climate change politics has not only still global north and global south, more and more since the Paris Agreement, the other dynamic is how to incorporate emerging economies with to be uh, participating to contribute. Of course, parties like China, India, Nigeria, or the BRICS have always put forth the argument of uh, that they have differentiated responsibilities, um, that it's part of the convention, and that they should return to the uh, party should always remember that uh, it's the global north that uh, we're responsible to mess with uh, climate change. And so in every um, negotiation room, whenever the issue on finance or financing or who is responsible, when that issue is brought up, uh, this is where we have these contentions uh, with China participating in trying to remove any sort of language that says uh, developing countries with uh, in the position to do so, where they are seen to be responsible or have to contribute. And what it does do is we can look again to the example of gender. We had one paragraph. We had global consensus in terms of what we should do and how we should move forth the agenda on gender and climate change. But we had one paragraph that took seven days to negotiate, which is about who should be contributing and who should be funding initiatives on climate change. While you have the global, you know, um, countries from LDC and small island countries, small island developing states, it's parties in the North, but you have the North also saying it must be also about uh, developing economies, especially uh, countries like China. And so their negotiators are very forceful in trying to uh, bring down uh, or water down the language or hide behind G77. And it makes negotiations much harder than it used to be before the Paris Agreement. And that's also because of the dynamic that we now have in a, uh, uh, a convention, I mean, a, a, an agreement where it's voluntary. All countries are asked to contribute voluntarily. And so uh, the dynamic right now is countries 
from the north, like European countries are saying to China and developing countries, please cut down your emissions and contribute. Uh, but of course, they're hiding behind the shade of G77 and saying, no, it's not our responsibility. And it makes that task a bit more hard. George and Siobhan, this is such a fascinating conversation and it's incredible to get the the insights that you have having been in the room over the past couple of weeks as negotiations have taken place. We're going to take a very short break now, but we will be back in just a moment to continue this conversation. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Siobhan McDonnell and George Carter talking about COP27 um, that recently wrapped up in Egypt. And George, before we went to the break, you were was beginning to talk a little bit about some of the negotiations that had taken place around gender um, and the, the gendered aspects of climate change. And, and you were deeply involved in some of those negotiations this time around. Could you just map for us what the discussions and what the debates were um, around gender in Egypt this time? I'll start by saying that gender and climate change and how it's discussed within UNFCCC is still very slow and it's miles away. And that it's still a conversation about uh, gender balance. Uh, if, um, the number of women participating uh, in gender um, negotiations, but also it's about uh, establishing gender policies uh, in countries. We have yet to cross the buffer um, zone to say we are now also looking at gender equality. That's it. In this year's pro, um, negotiation, it was about the review of the implementation of the Gender Action Plan, which is part of the LIMO uh, framework on um, on gender. And so negotiations was about, do we continue the work of the gender action plan and the work of gender climate change focal points? Do we enough have enough resources to support not just developing countries, but all countries? And so the dynamic that happened this year, of course, uh, there is a consensus that we need to continue this work on gender action plans in all countries and supporting um, uh, gender focal points. But what we were stuck on and who provides this support. And as I've alluded to in the previous comment, uh, this was all about whether all parties should or is it just developed countries. Something that uh, we're very proud of, especially from the Pacific. Um, not only we were able to, for the first time, bring together uh, 
participants or negotiators who are actually from the ministries of women or ministries of gender. We've now brought them in through a campaign to be part of climate change negotiations. So it's not just the climate change technical people who are actually bringing in gender in negotiations. We were able to have a climate gender uh, champion through the Minister of Niue, uh, the Honorable Esther Sharon Ainu, to take this message of um, highlighting the need to better support uh, climate change and gender throughout all countries. So we provide this political championship. What we're aiming for from this vision is having a COP that discusses or elevates gender, women, and all and social inclusion um, you know, at the highest point. And so that's something that we are working towards from the Pacific into elevating this agenda. And beyond that, it's providing uh, adequate support, uh, you know, for, for focal points as well to, to carry this forward. And we were particularly proud of the language that we were able to establish of simplified access for women, indigenous, local communities. And this is um, something that, uh, you know, while having funding or support is, is, is essential, if we were talking, going to be talking about working and supporting women, uh, if our governments are having a hard time accessing or Pacific governments are having a hard time accessing these funds, just imagine local women or indigenous women's group getting access to these climate funds internationally will be an added burden. And so this is um, part of the work that came out this year and some of the pluses or the wins that we could say in terms of the work uh, from women and climate change from the Pacific. It really is remarkable just to consider the amazing impact that Pacific Island leadership's had on the COP, the series of COPs over the last decade or two. Uh, and again, George, you've just taken through us, uh, given us a remarkable example of the leadership that's exhibited. Siobhan, both Australia and Brazil have been seen as recalcitrant in seriously addressing climate change in recent years. There's been a change of government in both of these countries just this year. And I wonder whether that led to meaningful changes in the negotiation positions and how the delegates at COP27 responded to these two powers in their negotiations. Was it, was it a, a good time to be using the Australian flag? Hmm. I mean, I think there's definitely a change in political leadership that's recognised through the Pacific um, on these issues of climate change. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, the pavilion, the Australian pavilion this year was not sponsored by Santos, which I think was a significant step forward. Um, so the optics have changed. Australia did not win um, the kind of fossil award that it usually wins at every COP. But from the perspective of the Pacific leadership, I think, um, there's a whole range of leaders who are also wanting to see additional commitments being made, um, particularly around emissions and around just transition issues. So, uh, for example, you can see the comments from Ralph Regan Vanu, the Minister for Climate Change in Vanuatu, who's calling on Australia to really stop fossil fuel subsidies going forward if Australia wants to co-host uh, the COP31 alongside the Pacific. So there's a, a range of agendas that are being put forward, but I think it's it's genuinely um, there is transition within the Australian government. Uh, there's a, 
a more meaningful engagement around issues that are very important to the Pacific, like the loss and damage finance facility. I think there's very genuine engagement by Australia and New Zealand about on these areas of key concern. So it's really about um, thinking around what that means moving forward. And uh, Australia has understood for a long time, and we've spoken about it previously on this program, this idea that climate change is the greatest security threat to the Pacific region that is constantly articulated by the Pacific leadership. And I think there is a sense of Australia um, being called on increasingly to start uh, really articulating those concerns that are so important to the Pacific. George, Australia has announced that it will bid to co-host COP31 together with Pacific Nations. If that bid is successful, what would it mean for Australia's relationships in the region? And, And what would it signal to the rest of the world in terms of Australia's ambitions to do more and to engage more positively with its neighbours in the Pacific? Of course, uh, if Australia is successful uh, in the bid, in working and collaborating together with uh, Pacific Island states, it will send signals all around the world, but it's more essentially signals within Australia, um, you know, in terms of uh, the private sector, in terms of uh, community, in terms of education. And seeing uh, you'll we'll have these positive signals, especially through investment, that we need to be uh, actioning more of this uh, climate action or cl- climate consciousness that we are, are now about to have. In terms of the relationship with the Pacific, it goes a long way. This is a platform, UNFCCC is an essential platform for the Pacific. If we look at the work that's carried out through the Pacific Pavilion, a pavilion hosted for Pacific Island countries, there are 71 events that were uh, presented you not only have more than 500 negotiators and uh, participants from the Pacific parties. So it is uh, a very uh, uh, essential uh, platform for Pacific Island countries. And you also have the history of Fiji hosting this in conjunction with Germany back into um, uh, COP23. So, of course, this will show the strength of Australia and Pacific Island countries in terms of uh, working together in terms of climate change. However, it does not mean that it will be an easy uh, transition or the work will be easy for COP. There's a lot of things that need to be done. The diplomacy of hosting or become the, or having the presidency uh, to host the COP is a lot of work. It's not just you host in the three weeks and that's it. It actually takes more than two years of working together as hosts and working with key parties like the U.S., like Russia, and EOSIS, and Africa. It's about that diplomacy of building consensus from the beginning all the way to the end. Um, and it's about also elevating the stories from within Australia, of including First Nations, but also the stories from within the Pacific. And this is where, while it will be a challenging to work together to build that momentum, especially in the year leading up to it, uh, the presidency and the year after to administer the work of the COP in the following year. It will also be a platform where we can come together and build new ways of climate futures, more attention on climate education, 
climate careers, um, the importance of indigenous knowledge and First Nations to be a part of the work of adaptation, to be a part of the work of climate science. It's about showcasing climate investments, smart ways of moving forward. But at the same time, it's also showing our diplomacy. It's not just Australia, but also Pacific in working together. So uh, in a nutshell, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but it will be a very important uh, signal, not only for the world, but especially for Australia and the Pacific in showcasing um, climate innovation. It sounds like an amazing challenge and one that could be so constructive in the Australian context. Siobhan, one critical area where we didn't see progress at COP27 was around further ambition in keeping global temperatures from rising by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Indeed, some countries were reportedly pushing to drop that ambition altogether. What, if any, movement did we see at COP27 in terms of addressing the primary cause of climate change? the burning of fossil fuels? Uh, So there's two parts to the answer to that question. One is what has happened with fossil fuel language, but the second one is what's happened in the mitigation space. So I might just start with mitigation first, which is uh, there was a real sense at this COP that a lot of the mitigation commitments that were made at Glasgow went backwards. So this is, of course, a very critical issue to the Pacific because you know, 1.5 is really a threshold at which point there are really huge implications for coral atolls, but for the Pacific more broadly. And 1.5 is a a global planetary boundary really for for the globe. There are certain uh, climate processes that really pass a point of no return at 1.5 degrees. Um, So it's critical. uh, The time is now to address 1.5 and We did not see ambition at all in that space at this COP. In fact, there was a very particular paragraph in the mitigation decision text that was extremely concerning. All mitigation targets are voluntary. The whole of of the UNFCCC framework is a voluntary framework. So it relies on uh, parties, country parties, to make a nationally determined commitments to how they're going to address climate change within their nation states. Um, We saw some of that target language watered down to the point where the mitigation work program started to look pretty farcical in terms of what it could achieve going forward. Some of that language was strengthened um, really in the last moments of COP, but still not as strong as what we came out of Glasgow with. So that's very concerning. And it's particularly concerning because there were key countries, uh, Saudi Arabia um, amongst them, that were pushing very strongly for a weakening of those mitigation targets. The second aspect is the fossil fuel language. So you will remember in the final gasps of Glasgow that there was a move by India and China to water down that fossil fuel language out of the Glasgow text. That was revisited at this COP and some commitments were made in that space that are positive moving forward, but again, are not the scale of commitment that is needed in order for us really to address what's happening globally with our warming planet. And these are critical issues for all of us. Uh, This is, you know, these are the polar caps that are melting. This is sea level rise. This is massive, massive changes to our climate system as we know it. 
floods will worsen, fires will worsen. You know, this is really a critical tipping point for us. We're currently, um, the climate science estimates, we're currently hitting 1.3. So this is an imminent problem for our globe. And unless we can strengthen mitigation targets, we're in serious trouble moving forward. Siobhan, that is so incredibly sobering to to hear you say. I think we all know that we're at a tipping point, but to hear it articulated so clearly is is very confronting. Uh, This has been a remarkable conversation and and there is so much more to say and we'll return to these issues, Um, but we are going to need to, to wrap this this discussion up for the for the moment. In closing, I, I just wanted to ask a question of each of you. COP28 will be held in Dubai at this time next year in November, December 2023. What do each of you think are the key things that need to happen over the next 12 months to ensure that the summit is a success? Siobhan, perhaps you'd like to, to lead off and, and share with us what you'd like to see happen over the next 12 months. Uh, So I'd like to echo um, some of what George has articulated so well in this podcast and just say that the role of the presidency matters immensely in creating good outcomes and the work of the presidency starts well in advance of COP. So really beginning almost in January, we really need strong direction from the presidency. We need movements towards building consensus well in advance of COP. And I think we have all of us learnt a lot from uh, the experience in Egypt and I think some of those lessons need to be taken forward. Uh, We're operating in a very fraught geopolitical environment. Um, We need to make sure that we're building consensus early on some of these critical issues. So from my perspective, um, we've already got contributions coming in in terms of loss and damage finance. I think we need to build on those going forward. I would really like to see key progressive countries, but also, you know, more broadly, some of those blocks that I've already identified starting to move forward with contributions to the loss and damage finance facilities so that we don't face this issue of, of building what potentially could be an empty shell. We really need to get all of this work moving forward, we need to get very significant political and financial contributions into the loss and damage finance fund so that when it is launched at the next COP, we really have a sense that of momentum behind it and that uh, there is the financing to be able to move forward on what is such a critical issue. And George, what would you like to see happen over the next 12 months? So next year, there will be two key um, processes or events happening. One, of course, is the global stock take uh, since the Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. where we'll have a look uh, in Bonn of what has happened um, and how are we implementing the decisions that we've made uh, since Paris 2000, um, since the Paris Agreement uh, was put forth. The second, of course, is the unfinished business from this year. There's so many uh, items that were on the agenda that have been put forth, have been watered down. A lot of people have, um, you know, had a, a lot of disappointment. Of course, one is getting an improvement um, agreement on the language of 1.5. The IPCC report clearly states that uh, we need to have peaking as soon as possible so we uh, avoid 1.5. Yet we did not get that agreement and it wasn't part of the cover decision. So that's essential. Ensuring that you do have uh, a global consensus on this target and that it does not 
move away from the 1.5. Of course, we need to continue to intensify environmental integrity in the um, negotiations around carbon markets. This is very essential, especially now that we are moving into different types of carbon markets, that's only government, uh, but also from the private sector. So that's also essential. The big one is on finance. What finance, can we meet the uh, global goal on finance, but also can we see that long-term target of $100 billion? Uh, and then how that can translate into funding for loss and damage and other sources, including gender. So that will be another important one. And of course, the global goal on adaptation. One of the downfalls of the um, Egyptian presidency was the fact that too many agenda items. So it's essential that the work in Bonn needs to clearly, and then this is where UAE can come through its presidency, identify the key five or six big issues. Because having 20 issues opened up at the same time can really lead to what we have. Nothing uh, worth uh you know, to hold your head up high and say, we made a really strong, we have sort of weak agreements across the board. So it's essential for me, we have a strong presidency, very targeted approach in terms of what are the key um, issues, tie in all the um, items that were not fully discussed or where we moved away with big disappointments and that uh, we are able to, uh, you know, for loss and damage, move forward in that space. And something that person to me in terms of gender is that we move that agenda forward and move into more discussions around gender equality. Thank you. George and Siobhan, it has been such an incredible privilege to to talk to you today, to hear your insights from this most recent COP. Um, the issues that we are facing as uh, as, as, as a global community sometimes feel overwhelming, but I must say it is always reassuring to know that some of these negotiations are being led by people with the expertise and the imagination and the commitment that each of you have. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Anna Greta, once again, what remarkable insights from hearing directly from Siobhan and George about what went on within those negotiating rooms at COP. You know, last year I found it so incredible to hear what had gone on. And this year, I think even more so when we hear about the the, the role of the, the presidency um, and how that shaped the, the way conversations unfolded. Um, to hear about the good and the bad and perhaps some of the ugly of what went on. Sharon, I completely agree. And I think the the remarkable privilege of having the two of them as COP negotiators with a, a really extraordinary depth of experience. Joining us for discussion of the events offers extraordinary insight into what's actually just taken place. I'm sure like many listeners, we've been lo- looking at the news and the media that's around COP27. But yet listening to the two of them talking about the experience in itself offers a richness and an understanding of the complexity of what's up for those, in those global negotiations. 
And that was part of what I, I can very much hear both from the conversation we had last year with Siobhan and George around COP26 and again this year perhaps more so is that global negotiations are complex and there is a very real risk that many of the central issues, things like how we reduce our consumption of fossil fuels and our increase in greenhouse gas emissions, how we might confront that problem can really stall when there's not good quality global negotiation. Um, and yet it must be such an extraordinary task to try and bring people together to discuss these issues. The other interesting part about climate negotiations for me is always around the the quantitation of the risk, the idea that we can negotiate to 1.5 degrees. And I'm struck that just in the last week or so, there was a new CSIRO State of the Environment report out here in Australia that's looked at what's happened in our climate in recent time and what's predicted in the years ahead. When we negotiate around 1.5 degrees, it really doesn't tell us either what we've experienced so far or what we're likely to see in the future. That increase in extreme weather events and the sort of suffering and destruction, the death and the disability that will flow from the change in our climate. I'm always humbled listening to both George and Siobhan talk about that through the prism of the Pacific Islands. It is so important that we see good mitigation of climate change action. And this was, I guess, part of the message I'm hearing from the two of them, that that was missing at the most recent COP. Uh, And the question is whether further negotiations can really contend with that in a way that gives people a good future. Under Greta, I I think that's exactly right. And as you you just pointed out so powerfully, at the centre of all of this is the impact on people's lives and what kind of existence, what kind of future we have um, as a society. And, you know, as I listen to George and Tavon and then listening to the comments that you just made, I'm, I'm also sort of struck by the domestic politics that intersect with the global negotiations. And, of course, you know, immediately coming out of the, the COP negotiations when we had that really positive outcome about setting up a, a loss and damage finance fund. Uh, we had in Australia the, the leader of the opposition reported as saying that at a time when Labor's policies are driving up the cost of living pressures for families, the government has just signed funding for loss and damage climate fund, which will send money overseas and beyond our re- region. And this is such short-term politicking that it really frustrates and, quite frankly, angers me. Um, You know, of course, the Loss and Damage Fund is about our responsibility, particularly to the Pacific, where these issues are are about the very survival of nations. But all of this is also around our, our commitment to mitigation, and we don't have to look anywhere beyond New South Wales and Victoria at the moment to see what is happening as a result of catastrophic climate change. Now, we are seeing people in Australia suffering as we are seeing people around the region and around the globe suffering, and we have to move beyond that short-term politicking um, and point scoring to thinking seriously about what kind of vision and what kind of leadership will move us in a new direction. And and I think what is so fascinating is some of that vision and leadership continues to come from young people. You know, we see coming out of COP27, Greta Thunberg and 600 other young activists in Sweden launching a case against the Swedish government for climate inaction. We saw around the fringes of COP and indeed in some of the negotiations, you know, the, the, the voice of young people demanding both climate and intergenerational justice. 
it's so important that that leadership is coming from young people, but really it shouldn't be coming from young people alone. And it is time for all politicians of all colours across the globe to step up and to take their leadership responsibility seriously. Absolutely. Sharon, I know we're going to continue to come back to the challenge of global negotiations on climate change. We will no doubt talk more about the challenge of climate change locally, regionally and globally over the course of the next year or so. Listeners, we are always interested in your feedback on our conversations. We will leave a link to the publications we've discussed in the show notes. We love hearing from the audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum send us an email directly at podcast at policyforum.net or you can join us on Facebook at Policy Forum Pod. We will be back next week for what will be our last show for 2022. But for me, Anna Greta Hunter, I'll see you next week. And for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.